This is our second study on passing on God's word to the next generation from Psalm 78. In our first study, we noted that Psalm 78 focuses on passing on God's word because obedience brings blessing and disobedience brings curse. And so the psalmist challenges the next generation to obey God's law, to not forget God's works. And so we have a responsibility of passing on to the next generation God's word and God's works. Now, this is a theme that runs throughout Scripture. For example, we saw in Ephesians 6, 4 that we have a responsibility to bring up our children, bring up the next generation in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. We noted in Proverbs chapter 1, verse 8, that the book of Proverbs is a book of instructions from a parent, from a father or a mother, to their son, to their daughter. When we go back to the beginning of the scriptures, back to the Torah, we read in Deuteronomy 6, 6 to 7, These words which I command you today shall be in your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children. We have a responsibility, as Proverbs says, to train up our children, train up the next generation in the way they should go, and when they are old, they will not depart from it. As I mentioned last time in our study, that statement from Proverbs, train up a child, that's our responsibility. And we see the promise attached, when they are old, they will not depart. Now, that hinges upon our responsibility of training. And as I challenged last time, I'll challenge again, we have to examine ourselves and consider whether or not we are indeed training up our children in the way they should go. Training up our children involves teaching them God's word and God's works. We can't just simply pass off that responsibility. Certainly, we want to have them at church. Why? Because that's where they're going to hear God's word and God's works. But the church is not the sole source of training your children. It's not the sole place where children are trained up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. That's a responsibility that has to be also happening in the homes. The church is a support structure to that. It's not the loan structure in that. Mothers, fathers, grandmothers, grandfathers, aunts, uncles, spiritual fathers, spiritual mothers, you have the responsibility of engaging that next generation in exploring the words and works of God. And it's more than just simply reading a verse and, and going on. It's engaging them. What does this mean? What does God's word say? How does it apply to your life? What does this mean? How does this look? It's in, it involves taking God's word and works and implementing them into the day-to-day life. Now, last time we looked at verses 1 through 4. Listen, O my people, to my instruction. Incline your ears to the words of my mouth. I will open my mouth in a parable. I will utter dark sayings of old, which we have heard and known, and our fathers have told us. We will not conceal them from their children, but tell the generation to come the praises of the Lord and his strength and his wondrous works that he has done. Here in verses 1 through 4, we see a call, and it's a call to pass on God's word to the next generation. Then we saw verses 5 to 8. For he established a testimony in Jacob and appointed a law in Israel, which he commanded our fathers, that they should teach them to their children, that the generation to come might know, even the children yet to be born, that they may arise and tell them to their children, that they should put their confidence in God and not forget the works of God. 
but keep his commandments and not be like their fathers, a stubborn and rebellious generation, a generation that did not prepare its heart. And here in verses five through eight, we saw the command to pass on God's word to the next generation. Not only are we called upon to do it, but we are commanded to do it. Why? Because we don't want the next generation to be stubborn, to be rebellious, to forget God's works, to disobey God's commands. Don't be like a previous generation that was just like that, stubborn and rebellious. Again, the best way to root out stubbornness, the best way to root out rebellion is by proclaiming, teaching, training in God's word and works. Now, we come to uh, verses 9 and 11, and we're going to see a caution. We're going to see another caution in verses 12 to 20. And so we're going to look today at verses 9 through 20. Two cautions. And now what the psalmist does here, beginning in verse 9, is begins the training process. He's going to go back to the scriptures. He's going to go to God's word. He's going to show them God's works in two cautionary tales as to, okay, next generation, here's what you need to know. Here's the lesson. Because remember what we're told in Romans and Corinthians. These things are written for our learning, for our instruction. Why? So that we do not make the same mistakes that the previous generation made. So verses 9 through 11. The sons of Ephraim were archers equipped with bows, yet they turned back in the day of battle. They did not keep the covenant of God and refused to walk in his law. They forgot his deeds and his miracles that he had shown them. Here's caution number one. Beware of forgetting God's words and works. Beware of forgetting God's word and works. You know, here the psalmist begins expositing biblical, the biblical text, biblical history, and he gives us a comment here about Ephraim's descendants. Now, who was Ephraim? Ephraim was one of the sons of Joseph, Manasseh and Ephraim, the second son of Joseph, Genesis 41, 50 to 52. And when the children of Israel took the land, the promised land, Ephraim had settled in the north. Now, the psalmist says here they were archers equipped with bows. So that was their strength, okay? As they went to fight, as they went to war, they were the archers uh, leading the battle. And so notice here, though, in the day of battle, what did they do? They turned back. They turned back. They went to war. They were armed for battle. But when the battle came, they ran. They left their other brother and sister tribes to fend for themselves in the day of battle. Why? Because they forgot God's word and works. God had clearly told them, when you go to take the promised land, you are to take it together. God had made a clear command for them to go in. Yes, settle your land. But once your land is settled, you go help all the other tribes settle the land. Well, that wasn't the case here. And as a consequence, they disobeyed God's covenant. They broke his law. They refused to walk in his law. Now that word walk means to conduct yourself. They refused to conduct themselves. They refused to live, behave according to God's law. So they forgot his word. And they forgot his deeds. They forgot his miracles. 
You know, when we talk about the miracles, the deeds, listen, just go back to Exodus, okay? Look at the 10 plagues. They were miracles that God performed on behalf of his people. While the rest of the land of Egypt was suffering, there was the land of Goshen and totally free from the plague. They had seen in the Exodus God's mighty power. He parted the Red Sea. He caused uh, water to come forth from a rock. He caused manna to fall down from the sky. He, ca- he, he, he sent birds for them to have meat to eat. On and on. I mean, the fact that their sandals didn't wear out for 40 years. I mean, we go on and on and see God's miraculous works. And it wasn't enough. Their, their spirit was not faithful to God. And so we have a negative example here to learn from. Don't be like the children of Ephraim. We need to first and foremost tell that next generation, warn them, beware of forgetting God's word and works. There are consequences. If you forget God's word, if you forget God's work, you're going to suffer. That's what happened to Ephraim. And listen, Ephraim was going, was, everything was good. They were going along just fine until the battle came. And my friends, there is a battle for that next generation. There are spiritual forces at war trying to take them captive. And we've got to fight. We've got to fight for them. And when we're fighting for that next generation, we cannot afford that in the day of battle, we're going to just turn around and run tail. We have got to remember God's words, remember God's works. And when we do that, we will stand firm in the day of battle. You know, we have to tell that next generation they're in the battle. And then the only way they're going to survive in the battle is by remembering God's word and works. Now we get another caution in verses 12 to 20. So the first caution, beware of forgetting God's word and works. Here's another caution. Beware of testing God's word and works. Beware of testing God's words and works. Verse 12. He wrought wonders before their fathers in the land of Egypt in the field of Zon. He divided the sea and caused them to pass through. He made the water stand up like a heap. Then he led them with a cloud by day and all the night with a light of fire. He split the rocks in the wilderness and gave them abundant drink like the ocean depths. He brought forth streams also from the rock and caused waters to run down like rivers. Yet they still continued to sin against him, to rebel against the Most High in the desert. And in their hearts they put God to the test by asking food according to their desire. Then they spoke against God. They said, can God prepare a table in the wilderness? Behold, He struck the rocks so the waters gushed out and streams were overflowing. Can he give bread also? Will he provide meat for his people? And so after this cautionary tale regarding the children of Ephraim, the psalmist turns his attention in verses 7 through 8 to that generation that came out of Egypt. The generation that came out of Egypt. You know, as we look at biblical history, it teaches us to hope in God. It teaches us to remember his word, to remember his works. And when we talk about remembering, it's not just recalling them, but it's the idea of remembering is recalling and doing, hearing and heeding, obeying his commandments. Don't be like the rebellious generation of the past. Now, look at the works of God here. He tells us that God performed marvelous things. Same word we saw back in verse 4. And those marvelous things were seen in the plagues of Exodus 7 through 12. 
Where did this take place? In the field of Zoan. Lest anybody think, well, that's just a fairy tale. That really didn't happen. Those plagues are made up. Listen, the Bible is a historical book. It passes all three tests that profess it to be a historical book, a genuine, true, historical accounting. The fact that the psalmist takes the time here to mention the field of Zoan is important because it gives us a geographical location for where these plagues occurred. When we are provided with a geographical location, that means that we can go to that location, that we can explore the culture, the history, the, uh, the society of that land, of that locale, and find confirmation of the truth recorded here in the Bible. Now, where is Zoan? Zoan is the capital city of the land of Goshen, in northeast Egypt. Why is that important? Because that's where the children of Israel lived for the 400 and some years they were there in Egypt. The children of Israel lived in the land of Goshen in northeast Egypt. He goes on to say, moreover, Yahweh split the Red Sea. They marched through on dry land. The rivers, the waters rather of the sea were heaped up on each side of them. Exodus chapter 14, 21 to 22. He provided his presence by day and by night, a cloud by day, a pillar of fire by night. Exodus 13, 21. He gave Israel waters to drink from the rock. Exodus 17, verse 6. He caused waters to run down like rivers. Numbers 20, verse 10 and following. We see the wonders of God are numerous. God's miracles, God's wondrous works are seen in judgment, they're seen in redemption. They're seen in guidance. They're seen in provisions. Israel had every need supplied by God in the wilderness. God's works were on full display. And that memory, that history, should bring hope and encouragement. It should bring hope that, yes, we can trust in God's word. It should be in, bring encouragement that, hey, we're going to obey. Look at what God has done in the past. This is what God can do today. I remember his word, I remember his works, and I go forth in obedience. But in the midst of these miracles, notice what happens. Rather than have hope, rather than obey, Israel does the opposite. Their fathers sinned. They missed the mark. They fell short. And all the more, they didn't just sin. They rebelled against the Most High in the wilderness. How did they rebel? Now, there, there's a verse in Numbers that tells us that there were 10 specific occasions when they rebelled against God. Now, just think for a moment, all the miracles, all the miraculous things that they saw, and nonetheless, they disobeyed. They tested or tried God in their hearts. Now, the heart is the center of your thoughts, your, your place of volition. They tried God and demand food of their desires or of their lust. God gave them water, God gave them bread, God gave them meat, and it wasn't enough. They're just like that wicked generation in Jesus' day who saw all the miracles Jesus performed and still demanded a sign. We want to see a sign. Their cynicism, 
The evil of their heart is revealed here when they say, God, prepare us a table in the wilderness. Oh, we don't just want water and bread and, 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 and bird meat. We want a feast. Now, could God have prepared them a feast? Absolutely. But he didn't choose to. But it shows because, you know what? If they couldn't be satisfied with, with water and bread and, and bird meat, guess what? They weren't going to be satisfied with a feast. He could have given them everything. But they had rejected his work. They wanted more work. Listen, they rejected his work. They rejected his words. And so they saw the water, not enough. They saw the manna, not enough. They saw the birds, not enough. Folks, there's a sad reality here that if you keep seeking signs, if you keep seeking wonders, if you keep on seeking, you know, God to do more and more, folks, you are never going to be satisfied. The Pharisees certainly weren't satisfied. The Sanhedrin certainly wasn't satisfied. You know, we can get so focused on the miracle that we forget the miracle worker. And that's important, folks. You know, we, we have seen God do above and beyond tremendous things time and again. Time and again, there's things we've prayed for and God has intervened. And, you know, we rejoice in the miracles, okay, the miraculous works. But don't get so focused on the miracle performed that you forget the miracle worker. See, that's what happens. And so we have to be very careful that we don't end up testing God. Beware of testing God's word. You know, if God's word says, thou shalt do this, then we do that. If it says, thou shalt not do that, then we don't do that. So if we turn around and just forsake what God has told us to do or not to do, we're testing God. Because obedience brings blessing, disobedience brings a curse. Well, I'm going to disobey and we'll see. That's what Adam and Eve did in the garden. Don't eat of the tree. They eat of it, you'll surely die. Well, let's test that out. Well, I touched it, nothing happened. I bit into it, nothing happened. I ate it, it doesn't seem like anything happened. And then all of a sudden, something happened. We also need to be careful that we're not testing God's works. And God's works are tested when we reject the miracle worker. Wow, yeah, that, that is tremendous. Well, look at what look at that miracle. That that's nothing short of a miracle. Well, how do you think that happened? Oh man, those doctors are great. Oh, you know, that 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 job that I got did this. Uh, my boss did that. You know, whoa, 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 whoa. Listen, God may have used doctors and bosses and jobs and, and whatever else, but do you realize that at the end of the day, ultimately behind the scenes, it was God that was working? We've got to make sure that when we pass on to that next generation and we proclaim these wonderful works that God has done, that the emphasis isn't just on the miracle, but on the miracle worker himself. And beware. Beware of expecting God to do something. Well, God's done this and done this and done this. So surely he'll do this. You're testing God. Just because God's done something in the past does not mean he is bound to do that today. We need to learn to be satisfied with what God has done. Don't demand God jump over spiritual hurdles that you erect. This is what the Pharisees were doing. You know, how many things Jesus did, you know, water into wine, healing blind people, healing deaf people, healing lame people, curing leprosy, on and on the list went. And yet the Pharisees could never accept those signs. They kept setting the bar higher and higher and higher. And basically they denied the miracles 
by saying, well, you know, that's fine, Jesus. We don't believe you're really doing that. We think you're empowered by Satan. See, they denied the miracle worker. They denied his miracles. They denied him. If they had accepted his mighty works as from God, they would have abandoned their traditions. They would have fell at his feet and they would have worshiped him. And Israel in the wilderness has the same problem. They want to go back to the safety of Egypt. They want to worship the golden calf of their own making. They forget the wondrous works of God. And and guess what? They forgot God. They wanted more and more better proofs. No submission, only rebellion. That was the battle. And that is the battle you and I are facing. That's the battle the next generation is battling even now. They're being tempted to forget God's work, to forget God's word. Not only that, my friends, they're they're, they're now even testing. Did God really say? Did God really mean that? And so they're putting God to a test. Friends, we have a challenge to not only warn the next generation to not forget God's word and work, but we have a responsibility to warn that next generation not to test God's word and work. Father in heaven, Lord, we come before you. We enter your throne room of grace. We come before your throne of mercy because of our King, our Lord, our Savior, Jesus Christ. Father, we confess that you are the God of your word. You are the God of works. You have said and done mighty things, and we praise and give you the glory. Father, we come and confess that we need your help. There is a battle afoot for the souls of the next generation. And Father, I ask and pray that you would help us in that battle to win the souls of that generation coming up, even the generation not yet born. That, Father God, we would go forth and not be like the sons of Ephraim, not abandoned in the day of battle, but that we would go forth armed with your armor, taking up the shield of faith, taking up the sword of your word, having our feet prepared and, and firmly planted in the gospel, having on that breastplate of righteousness, having on that helmet of salvation, having our loins girded about with truth. May we stand in this wicked day, prepared to fight for our children, for our grandchildren, for for those whom we have a spiritual responsibility for. Father God, I ask that you might lead us into that battle. Help us, Father, to defend them. Help us to protect them. Help us, Lord, to guard them, to keep them in your word, to show them your works. Father, I ask as well that that we wouldn't become so focused on the works that we lose sight of the worker, the one who did those works. That, Lord, certainly you get all the glory. That we see behind the scenes you are constantly at work. Father, keep us from the wicked one. Keep us from our own wickedness, our own evil fleshly desires. And Lord, we ask that you would get all the praise, all the glory as we go forth in obedience to you. And to this we say, amen.